Welcome everyone to another episode of Aghast at the Past 1892. Warning adult content here. Listener discretion advised. In other words, please don't continue if you have delicate sensibilities. New information on the Tina Davis disappearance today, which I am eager to share. I hope you are enjoying getting your news on this case in quote-unquote real time. Most of the stories I will share with you here are one-and-dones, like the guy who stabbed himself with his pipe last time. A tiny bump on a vast historical landscape, really. But some of the stuff we will cover here is pretty darn sensational in nature, and enthralled readers originally over the course of weeks, months, years, complete with investigation and trials and and punishment. I figure it would be a nice balance to offer a little bit of each, each episode. And when the Tina Davis case finds some semblance of resolution this year, we'll have others of this same hair-raising caliber to keep you coming back week after week. That's the plan anyway. First, before we begin, I want to offer my sincerest apologies to J.R.R. Tolkien. He was born on January 3rd, 1892, and I completely missed acknowledging his entrance into the world. I don't like forgetting important dates, and we'll try not to make it a hobbit. So first, a national headline in many papers across the country on this day. The United States in 1790 created an armed customs enforcement service called the Revenue Marine. This was the predecessor to what we know today as the U.S. Coast Guard. Uh, established in 1915. For 125 years, the Revenue Marine maintained a fleet of cutters used for various government and military missions. One of these ships was the steam-powered USS Albert Gallatin, built in 1871 and named after Thomas Jefferson's Secretary of State. On the morning of January 6, 1892, Captain Eric Gabrielson, who was skippering the ship along the Massachusetts coast, got disoriented after a sudden snowstorm made it difficult to see. He tried to bring the Gallatin into the Gloucester Harbor, but it struck hard onto Boohoo Ledge. As the crew attempted to dislodge the cutter, it began to flood, and its smokestack crashed to the deck, killing the carpenter, Mr. Jacobson. Fortunately, the other 39 crew members were saved. So here's a short little blurb printed on page 9 of Indiana's Logansport Pharos Tribune about a fatal mistake in Lima, Ohio. Drank carbolic acid. Young men make a mistake in the bottle and die in agony. January 6th. Frank Mormon and Amos Hauser died in terrible agony at Coldwater, near here, Tuesday, from drinking carbolic acid by mistake. They were intoxicated Monday night and going into a drugstore where Hauser clerked for a drink of whiskey, got hold of the wrong bottle, and each took big drinks of the carbolic acid. The stuff commenced to act in a short time, and they suffered the most excruciating agony for several hours before their death. Next, a very tragic story out of the San Francisco Chronicle, page 12. A suspicious case, the death of Maggie Brown to be investigated. An autopsy indicates that she died from the effects of malpractice. 
The body of Maggie Brown, a girl 18 years of age, lies at the morgue awaiting an inquest to determine whether or not it is a case of criminal malpractice. The girl lived with her grandfather, Regino Carmen, at 1520 DuPont Street, her mother having died about five years ago. She was the illegitimate daughter of Marcelo Toledo, but after her birth, Toledo and her mother separated, and before long her mother was married to Charles Brown, an expressman in Chinatown. Three or four weeks ago, the girl said she felt ill and wanted to go to Dr. Rappin of 1608 Stockton Street. An old Spanish woman accompanied her, and after an examination by Dr. Rappin, the girl returned home with some bottles of medicine, which are now in the coroner's charge. A few days later, Maggie was so seriously ill that she took to her bed, where she lay for 23 days until she died at 4.40 o'clock yesterday morning. Dr. Joseph E. Articues of 303 1⁄2 Montgomery Street was summoned during the girl's illness. On his first visit, he could notice no symptoms of the true cause of the illness, but on the second visit, he did. The girl emphatically denied that she was in a delicate condition. Dr. Rappin was also summoned and prescribed some simple medicines. When the girl died yesterday morning, Dr. Rappin refused to sign the death certificate, so Dr. S.S. Kahn was called in. He also refused to sign the certificate and reported the case to the morgue. Coroner Garwood immediately sent a deputy to take the body of the girl to the morgue, where an autopsy was held by police surgeon Williams. The post-mortem examination showed that the cause of death was an abortion in all probability the result of a criminal operation which produced peritonitis and metritis. Peritonitis, by the way, is an inflammation of the membrane that lines the inner abdominal wall, and metritis is an inflammation of the uterus. The relatives believe that the girl maintained her innocence to the last for fear of her grandfather's wrath if she was exposed. An inquest will be held at 10.30 o'clock this morning. So one of the things 1890s San Francisco was notorious for, specifically in the area of Chinatown, were, of course, the Tong Wars. Tongs were Chinese associations, originally organized to help immigrants navigate through a new and sometimes hostile environment. But many developed into criminal organizations complete with paid enforcers called highbinders or hatchet men. These assassins often wore chainmail under their street clothes and were trained with a wide variety of weapons, including firearms, swords, daggers, and clubs. Like any city with a multitude of gangs, trouble was inevitable. They were often at war with each other over a variety of criminal enterprises, including opium, gambling, and slavery. Here is one of the many murders that sprung from these deadly rivalries, crimes that often flummoxed the police officers, who were usually white and didn't really understand the cultural differences, but were still required to clean up the mess. This is on the very same page as the last story, by the way. Another life has been credited to the Sui Ong Tong, and another death remains to be avenged by the Sui Sing Tong. 
The victim's name was Fong Git, and he was shot yesterday morning on DuPont Street. Fong was a bill poster for the Jackson Street Theater. He was going north on DuPont Street with a roll of bills under one arm and a paste pot and brush in the other hand when a Suiyong Tong killer stepped out of a doorway, followed Fong for a few steps, and then fired four shots in quick succession. That was a lot of alliteration there. One of the bullets struck the Chinese bill poster in the back of the neck, breaking the spinal cord and instantly ending his life. The murdered man fell to the pavement, striking his head with such force that two great cuts in the scalp marked the place where he hit the stones. The killing took place in front of 810 DuPont Street, and the murderer hurried across the street and escaped up the stairway at 807 DuPont Street. The dead man was soon picked up by the police and taken to the morgue. Officer Gale heard the shooting and was on the scene a minute later, but could do nothing until a milkman told him where the murderer had gone. Gale then ran up the stairs, only to find that the building was a typical Chinatown rookery, offering innumerable ways of escape. A passageway led out upon the roofs of some low buildings, and on the other side a door opened into a building facing on Waverly Place. Where the assassin ran when he got upon the roofs cannot be conjectured. Undoubtedly, many Chinese saw him, but it is certain that they will not tell about it. A posse of detectives was sent up in a hurry from the old city hall. The Chinatown officers joined them, and every possible effort was made to learn the particulars of the crime, but it was practically a fruitless quest. Several Chinese were found who admitted that they saw the shooting, but none of them would admit that he knew the murderer or had the faintest idea who he was, more than that he belonged to the Suiyong Tong. The police confess that they are powerless to deal with these Chinese murder mysteries and predict that the killings will continue until the Chinese New Year's, January 29th, when the Highbinders will settle all scores-by-money payments. The last man murdered was Tel Singh of the Suiyong Tong. Yesterday's killing evens this up. But at present, the score is still a little in the Suiyong's favor. I do not expect to find out who killed this man, said Detective Cox, after he had worked for six hours to clear away the mystery about yesterday's murder. I will do the very best I can, but that is all the good it will do. No Chinese will tell who the murderer was. He would not dare to. If he should tell, his life would not be worth anything. He would not live two days. Besides the Highbinder feud, there was another reason for killing Fongit. He is connected with a theater which is just now cordially hated by the members of all the societies. Highbinders usually deadhead all the theaters. From my understanding, deadhead was period lingo for get in free. But recently, the Jackson Street haunt of discordant sound shut down on this practice, and refused to give admittance to any person without a ticket. The Highbinders swore vengeance, and now the interpreter is under guard because he is afraid he will be shot. Everywhere he goes, a white man acts as an attendant. 
other employees fully expect to be killed. Chief Crowley said yesterday that he had resolved to ask the Chinese consul to provide some means of offering a reward of $1,000 at least for the conviction of each of the murderers. I hope such a reward will result in some disclosures, said the chief, for I will offer protection and immunity to all witnesses. I have two Chinese locked up in the station now who came to me for protection. If there were danger of highbinder witnesses being shot here, I would send them far enough away to be out of the reach of the assassins. If the reward be offered, I will have it printed in the Chinese language and posted in all parts of Chinatown. Last evening, two Chinese were arrested for carrying concealed weapons. The Chinatown squad is watching the highbinders very closely and standing them up and searching them at every opportunity. More clues are trickling in now in the Tina Davis mystery. And the Boston Globe on page 2 and 3 updated its readers on the latest of them. The first part of the article sympathizes with her mother, who of course continues to be beside herself with grief and worry. And as the investigation continues, as the days go on, fewer are thinking she committed suicide and more are believing that she was, in fact, murdered. And Albert Trefethen's unwillingness to cooperate makes him the primary suspect. Does an innocent man shelter himself behind the advice of counsel to be silent? The Boston Globe asked. Or does he explain so apparently simple a thing as his movements on a night on which people suspect him of other than innocent ones. One thing I I do want to clarify before we continue with our new information. Albert Trefethen's full name is James Albert Trefethen. And he goes by the name of Bert. So any mention of Albert Trefethen, James Trefethen, or even Bert Trefethen all refer to the same guy. Oh, and by the way, you've probably figured it out already, but the condition that they keep mentioning Tina Davis was in on the day she disappeared is, of course, a polite 19th century way of saying that she was pregnant. And pregnancy for an unmarried woman in 1892 makes the story especially scandalous for its day. All right, let's read a bit more from today's paper. The day's developments in brief are first. The findings of wheel tracks on the Wellington Bridge across the Mystic, which point strongly to the conclusion that they would not have been made unless something was to be thrown overboard from the vehicle. What vehicle made them? Second. The positive assurance that the letter received by the mother was posted in the Boston office between the hours of midnight on the 23rd and 7 a.m. on the 24th. And third, the striking similarity of the handwriting on the envelope of that letter with that on a receipt to Mrs. M.J. Davis, given by James A. Trefethen. These developments do not directly aid in finding the missing girl, but they form links of a chain of evidence connecting persons and things in the case and may in time be found to be most important ones. First then, as to the wheel tracks on the Wellington Bridge. From the time the disappearance of the girl was first reported to him, Chief of Police Emberton 
has done all that lay in his own power or that of his somewhat limited force to find her. Failing after diligent effort to get any clue to her movements, he yesterday began a search of the river and its marsh bank for traces of the body. Believing that it should come to the surface about this time if thrown overboard two weeks ago, or should at least be so nearly ready to come to the surface as to be easily dislodged and readily brought up by careful grappling. The ground, or water, would be a better expression. To be covered was an extended one. And the task one which promised anything but success. Yet work of any kind was preferable to inaction. And so a couple of officers in a boat dragged the river bottom near the Somerville shore upstream from the bridge to where the hat was found, while the chief himself gave personal attention to the shore and banks. Both search and grappling, when interrupted by the severe storm, had been unsuccessful. But on his return home, the chief stopped to inquire of the draw tender of the bridge concerning any suspicious teams he might have seen or heard. From the draw tender who lived in a cozy cottage at the Somerville end of the bridge, he obtained the startling information as to wheel tracks. It appears that it is the duty of the draw tender to carefully examine the bridge every morning for the purpose of ascertaining any possible need of repair. In carrying out this duty on the morning of the 26th, the day after Christmas, in the day on which the hat was found only a short distance above the bridge, the draw tender discovered that a team had been driven upon the sidewalk of the bridge from the Malden end and almost to mid-channel, and then had been turned around and driven back again. The sidewalk of the bridge is an unusually wide one, fully seven feet, and is separated from the roadway by an eight-inch timber, solidly bolted to the floor timbers. The rail is outside a similar timber on the very edge of the bridge, and the passageway between is more than sufficient for the passage of a buggy or a light express wagon. It was down this passageway on the easterly side of the bridge that the team was driven. The entrance to it from the roadway is difficult. No horse would find his way into it if left to himself nor would anyone leave the wide road for it, except with some particular purpose in view. Yet there were the tracks leading up to and into it, while along the edge of the beam separating it from the roadway were frequent abrasions where the tires of the wheels had cut into the wood, made undoubtedly as the vehicle was drawn inward by the natural desire of the horse to get as far from the railing and the water as possible. None but an old and steady horse could have been persuaded to try the passageway at all. Almost to the draw in mid-channel, the tracks continued, but then they ceased in the passageway, and there were unmistakable evidences that the team had been lifted or dragged over the beam, turned toward Malden, and driven in the direction from which it had come. The tracks could be traced from the beam from some distance, but were finally lost in the maze of other tracks in the center of the roadway. The draw tender marveled much at what he had found, but not knowing of the case now under investigation, was at a loss to assign any reason 
therefore. Now he believes his discovery was a most important one. The tracks, he says, were made by a team with a heavier and broader tired wheel than that of a buggy. Yet not by a wheel as heavy as that on even a light express wagon. They were made, he judges, by a light parcel delivery wagon or team of that character. They were plainly defined. Now the question comes, by whose team were they made, and what was the object the occupant or occupants of the team had in view? The bridge is a very lonely one after dark, and few teams pass over it then. Probably not more than one or two any night from midnight until the milk wagons begin their early morning trips. And now, who will say that it is not more than probable that in the team driven so carefully down a narrow and difficult passageway, there was something which was to be thrown overboard in mid-channel, where the rushing tide would bear it out to sea, or where, if it were heavily weighted, it might sink in water so deep as to preclude discovery. Who can tell either if what was thrown overboard was not the body of a murdered girl? And if the lonely bridge the misty, dark, and dismal night, the rushing water of the river did not witness the completion of the tragedy, which now is almost universally felt to have been enacted. If the body of the girl is beneath the cold waters of the mystic, it will be found sooner or later, and will convict those who placed it there, or will show that death was self-inflicted. Turning, however, to the developments in which the letter figures, it is found that it is written in pencil on a half-sheet of cheap notepaper and shows haste in writing, either real or simulated. It is without signature and reads as follows. Mother, when you get this, I shall be dead. The one you think guilty of, innocent. It is guiltless of punctuation and seems to indicate that something was to be added after guilty of, but that innocent was finally written, as if the sentence read, you think guilty is innocent. The envelope in which it is enclosed is of an equally cheap quality with the paper, and the address upon it is, like the letter, written in pencil. The address is to Mrs. M.J. Davis, Ferry Street, Everett, and the stamp is peculiarly placed in the left-hand upper corner instead of the right hand, as is customary. The postmark is Boston, Massachusetts, December 24th, 7 a.m. At the post office in this city, the most positive assurance was obtained that the letter must have been mailed in the Boston office between midnight and 7 a.m. It was not collected from a box, but was dropped on the table under the mailing box's opening on the corridor and was stamped with a hand stamp because the peculiar placing on the postage stamp would prevent proper cancellation in the regular stamping machine. Who, then, mailed it at the Boston office? Who was in the heart of the city between midnight and 7 a.m.? Was it a girl meditating suicide, or was it someone else? And if someone else, who? 
The mother says emphatically that the writing is not that of her daughter. Whose then is it? Like the wheel tracks, the letter does not aid directly in finding the girl. But like them, it may have an important bearing in the future. In the meantime, the people wait for news of Tina, while in the immediate neighborhood of her home, the feeling against the man accused by her mother is increased almost to fever heat. Threats of lynching were even made. And so serious did Chief Emerton consider the situation that he sent Sergeant Hewitt among those who were most earnest to say that nothing was to be gained by hasty action. And that certainly if the police did not have evidence sufficient to warrant the arrest of a man, the citizens did not have sufficient reason for talk of lynching. And still, the man whose name is on every tongue keeps silent. Newspaper men, he will talk to only on subjects other than his movements on the fatal night. But there he draws the line. I do not see, he says, how this search of the mystic can affect me one way or the other, unless it is to clear up the mystery and show I have no connection with it. I know no more of it than anyone and would only be too glad to see it cleared up. But though he talks calmly now, he was far from calm in his first interviews with Chief Emerton. In the latter's office, when he came in the afternoon of the 24th, at what was almost a command from the mother of the girl, after he had refused her any explanation, he cried, wrung his hands, and asked what he should do. When called in again a day or two later, he leaned calmly back in his chair and said, I have consulted counsel and am advised not to answer any questions. Tomorrow, Chief Emerton will renew the search in the mystic and keep it up until he finds something tangible or developments in the case come elsewhere. Thus ends the latest true crime updates from January 7, 1892, until next time.